Well, um, if you weren't here last week, uh, I threw a curveball, and the curveball is still coming. All right? And what do I mean by that? We've been going through the book of Acts. We're going to return to the book of Acts in, um, in January. Uh, but uh, after much prayer and, and thought, and, and Jared not talking about uh, what would be good for December, we settled not on a Christmas series. How about that? Although we're always in a Christmas series, aren't we? Because we're celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. But uh, um, but going to do a series here. This is our second week in the series called The Bible, God's Word. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, it's evident here at Grace Bible Church that we hold the Bible, God's Word, in high regard. In, in everything we do, you, you see the Bible. And the Bible is a focal point of what we're studying, what we're reading, what we're talking about, the abide readings, all those kind of things. We hold it in high regard, our high esteem. And uh, during the series, I just want to give some uh, answers to the question, why? Why do we read and study and memorize and meditate and, and hear the preaching of the Word? Why do we talk about the Word of God all the time? I mentioned last week, too, often in our lives, not only when it comes to the Bible, we, we answer the question, what, a lot. What to do. But we don't answer the why question. We don't get under the motivation, the heart issue of why we do those things. So I want to answer those, try to answer that question in many different ways during this series. And last week we answered this question, why do we hold the Bible in such high regard here and, and do these things here and read and study the Word? Um, uh, we answered it by this. The Bible, God's Word, is true. It's true. That's why we do those things. That's the why of reading and studying and memorizing and meditating and hearing the Word of God and talking about the Word of God and living the Word of God. Why? is because it's true. The Bible is true. And in the, the two weeks that follow this one, we're going to answer that question, that why question like this. The Bible, God's Word, is sufficient. We're going to spend two weeks on that. The Bible, God's Word, is sufficient. But this week, we're going to answer the why question with this. The Bible, God's Word, is reliable. God's Word is reliable. That's why we study and hear and and preach and memorize and talk about the Word of God. But before we examine that, that answer, the Bible is reliable, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask Him to, to open our hearts and, and our minds and bring about the change He'd like to through His Word this morning. So Lord, we do pray, uh, Lord, that we would not be only overwhelmed by Your creation, as was uh, read in Psalm 8 and just the wonders of the things that You do, but we would be overwhelmed in an awe and our response would be worship because you've given us your word. Or because without your word, we wouldn't understand your creation. We would understand the beauty that you bring and the change you bring in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray now as we look into your word and we talk about your word and uh, ask the question, why do we think it is your word and can we trust it? Uh, Lord, I pray you would open our hearts and minds and bring about change or encouragement. Um, Maybe even reproof where we might need those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, uh, we, we did answer that why question with the Bible is God's word because it's true. All right, it's true. And it, it's true in whole and it's true in part. We used the words infallible and errant last week. Infallible is the, is the, is the bird's eye view. It's, it's looking at the at Bible as a whole and we say it's, it's infallible. And then we looked, we looked at the word inerrant. And that all the parts, down to every single word in the Bible, God's Word is true. Not just part of it, not just 
thoughts of it, but every single word in God's word is true. And we, we looked at a few scriptures, I'll remind us of that in Psalm 19:7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. And then in Proverbs 35, every word of God is tested. Some translations say every word of God is pure, or it proves to be true. That's what it means, it's tested, like, like, like refiner's fire. It proves to be true. The word of God is true. And based on the scriptural evidence that the Bible is true, even our statement of faith here at Grace Bible Church, we say this, we believe that the Bible is written by God through whom authors without error in the original manuscripts and is the supreme and final authority in the lives of believers. Now notice we believe that it was without error in the original manuscripts. Without error. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Without error in the original manuscripts. And guess what? We have none of the original manuscripts. We don't have one original manuscript of any, of any of the 66 books in the Bible. Now, if you've never heard that before, and even if you have, just a reminder of that, you need to ask this question. Then is the Bible that we have in our hands today reliable? Because this is not the original manuscript. This is not what Peter and Paul and Moses and, and Elijah or any of them penned. This is not the, the ink that they use, and this is not the paper or what they call papyri, that they use to write down the Word of God. It's not. It's not the original. So, is it reliable? Can we trust the Bible that we hold in our hand, whether it be paper or a, paper or a copy on our iPad or iPhone or whatever the electronic device we have a copy of God's Word on? Can we trust it to be true? Let me ask this question. Do you trust that what you have in your hands is a faithful transmission, transmission and translation of what the biblical writers wrote. Do you believe it's true? Do you believe what you have is true? On a scale of 1 to 100, how sure are you that you are actually reading the actual words that the Lord breathed out through the biblical authors? 1 to 100, how sure are you? And many of you here just grew up believing that the Bible is true. And you ever ask questions, and it's okay. Maybe that's where you are, but I want you to ask questions. I want you to know that what you have in your hand or in your device or whatever it is, is true and you can trust it is reliable. Uh, others, may, many didn't grow up believing this and, and, and maybe even never considered it. Yet, yet the Lord in his grace here recently in your life has opened your eyes to the gospel. And he did it through, and we'll see this next week, we talk about the Bible is sufficient for salvation. He did it through the word of God. And you look and say, yeah, I can trust this. I know it's true. And, and, and yet others here, you may not think the Bible is reliable. You may think that this is a bunch of hogwash and somebody just made you come this morning. Or it's warm in here, it's cold out there. Whatever your reasoning, right? But you think no way is the Bible reliable. But wherever you are in your assurance of the reliability of Scripture or the Bible, my task by God's grace this morning is to strengthen your belief that the Bible that you hold in your hands is reliable. You can trust it. The reliability of the Bible is of extreme importance because it claims to be the Word of God, as we saw last week, thousands of times. Thousands of times it claims to be the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, uh, then this is how we get to know God. This is how we learn how we're rightly related to God. This is how we learn about who we are, about who He is, about what Jesus did on our behalf, about what He expects from us. It's how we grow 
all these things. So if it's true and if it's reliable, then it'd be a good thing for us to know that and, and trust it as we read, as we read his word. So almost four years ago, um, when I was preaching through the Gospel of John, how many of you all were here four years ago when I was pre preaching through the Gospel of John? Okay, a few of us were. A lot of us weren't. Okay, um, Jared wasn't even here when I preached through this message and preached through the, he might have come when I was still preaching through the Gospel of John because I took me like a hundred messages. Um, a lot of people, it's funny when they come, they say, well yeah, I started coming to Grace when we were in Genesis chapter 40 or we were in John chapter 12 or whatever, all right? You may, it, it may be the same with Acts here because it's going to be a longer series too, not as long as those two, but um, uh, but when I, when I did that, I came to this passage in John chapter 7 verses 53 through 811 and uh, how many of y'all remember that? Anybody remember, you know, what that, you know what that passage is about? That passage is a, is, is a famous passage about the, 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 uh, the woman caught in adultery. How many of y'all know about that passage of scripture, right? Yeah, we, we know, most of us have heard about that story. And I used it as a test case to the reliability of the Bible. So I want you to turn in your Bibles there to John chapter 7, verse 53. All right? And, and, the, and, the, and the passage kind of goes down through verse 11 of chapter 8. And it contains this, this very popular account of the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees catch this woman in the act of adultery. And they bring her to Jesus. And Jesus, display, Jesus displays his wisdom amazingly in this passage. He displays his grace. He, he displays his forgiveness. Um, all through this account. Amazing things that we learn about Jesus and about what he's doing. Now look with me um, there at verse 53 in your Bible. Chapter 7. Now many of your translations will have a little bracket before that. You see that in verse 53? There's a little bracket there. And then after the bracket, it has a little number. And mine says one. So this is what you do. You look at verse 53. You look down with margin, the bottom of your, 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 your page or whatever it is, and you find verse 53, and it has a little one there. All right, corresponding with that. And it says, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, um, numbering it as John 7, 5, 53 through 811. All right, so that, that's, that's, that's what mine says. All right, um, the, the ESV uh, says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 753 through 811, saying the same thing. Other translations will say uh, the most reliable manuscripts, the older manuscripts, we, they, they don't include that. Uh, the King James, New King James, they don't include anything about this not being in the oldest manuscripts. And the reason why is because when those good English translations, and they are good English translations, were translated, we didn't have these older manuscripts. And since that time, uh, when the King James was written and the manuscripts it was based off of, which are good, all right, there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I think thousands of new manuscripts have been discovered that are older than the manuscripts they had before them. Okay, so that, that's why it doesn't say anything there. That's okay. Um, almost all New Testament scholars do not think that this account was part of the Gospel of John when it was written, but it was added centuries later. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, D.A. Carson, one of the greatest New Testament scholars today. And when I say that, some people hear scholars, you know, and these guys don't know what they're talking about. They're just a bunch of eggheads. This guy loves Jesus. And he believes what we do about the gospel. So when I say that, many people will turn that off. Biblical scholars. Those guys don't, do not in reality. This guy is solid as all get out. Um, unbelievable man of God. Not only is he smart, but he's a man of God. So that's good. It can, you can do both, all right? 
Well, listen to what he says here. Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was the original part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text. Now, he gives a couple of illustrations, and you can find it in, in any of the modern, more modern English translations, NIV, New American Standard, RSV, ESV, there's a footnote. Okay, he says they're right to, to, to say something about that, not just read on and not say anything about it because we have evidence now that we didn't have before. So they're right to bring that up. Leon Morris, um, another uh, uh, biblical scholar who really loves Jesus, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. So what, you want to know what your pastor thinks about this? I agree with him. And I don't agree with them because they're biblical scholars. I don't agree with them because they have 18 letters behind their name. All right? I don't agree with them because of that. I believe the same thing is because the evidence points to that. And the evidence is clear that John 753 through 811 was not in the original manuscript of John. So let me share with you two different types of evidences for not including these verses in, in the Gospel of John. Now, I've got a lot of slides this morning. Why? Because there's a lot of detail. And I don't want you to miss this. Okay? All right? First, internal evidences. All right, this passage of scripture disrupts the flow of thought in Jesus' teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, this is where Jesus is. Um, he's teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's come to Jerusalem to teach at the Feast of Tabernacles for specific reasons. Uh, in, in John 7, 37 through 52, that leads up to this passage, he's referring to a water so ceremony which, which was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so he's, he, he, this, this ceremony is going on. He stands up and he teaches in the midst of this festival and he uses water as an illustration. All right, then, if, then, then right after this passage in 8, 12 through 21, Jesus refers to another one of the great ceremonies associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, the lamp lighting ceremony. So there's two ceremonies, the water ceremony and the lamp lighting ceremony, and Jesus refers to both of them, all right, during this festival. And yet this passage about this adulterous woman is just kind of stuck in there. It, 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 it takes away from the normal flow of the passage. It disrupts the flow of thought. Secondly, its vocabulary and style are different. They differ from the rest of the gospel of John. For example, in 8.3, we find the phrase scribes and Pharisees here in this um, account of the adulterous woman. And nowhere else together do those things appear in the Gospel of John? This phrase, scribes and Pharisees, you never see that phrase in the Gospel of John. You see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but never in the Gospel of John, except right here. Are the scribes and Pharisees referred to in John? Yes, but never together. It's a common phrase in the other Gospels. All right? Um, thirdly, its location varies in latter or later or younger manuscripts, meaning that where it's stuck in, it's, it's different places. You can go find lots of manuscripts that have this uh, right after John 7.36 or after John 7.44 and other manuscripts and after tw John 21.25. And even this, listen to this, even this, this even appears in some manuscripts in Luke. This account appears in Luke. Not in John, but in Luke. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, the diversity of placement confirms the inauthenticity of the verses. I mean, this is, this is the only passage in all what we have the New Testament today, in all the New Testament, that is done, that this is done with. It's all, it's all over the place. You find it here, you find it there, you find it here, you find it there. It's the only one. Okay? The only, only passage like that. Okay, the second kind of evidence, that's the internal evidence from the Gospel of John, is the external evidence. All right? 
Um, the external evidence. These verses are not found any, in any Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. None of them are in the Gospel of John before the 5th century, which is a lot older manuscripts. All right? Second, they're not found in the older, oldest manuscripts written in Coptic, Old Latin, Old Georgian, Syriac, and Armenian. Now, now these, are, these are languages that the, the, the uh, um, New Testament was translated to early on, all through that region. Okay, what we know, the Holy Land and beyond. These are some of the languages the New Testament was translated into. And way before the 5th century. Okay, they're very old manuscripts. And, and none of them contain this passage about the adulterous woman. Now, third external evidence is the early church fathers omit this passage when commentating verse by verse on the book of John. They, they don't even bring it up. And, and, and when I say early church fathers, I'm talking about 2nd and 3rd century early church fathers, they never mention this passage when they're commenting verse by verse through the gospel of John. All right, what would that tell us? They didn't have it in their gospel of John. It wasn't there. Okay, and then, and then fourthly, um, even when the account begins showing up in manuscripts, it's often accompanied by an asterisk or an obli, which is, which is a, a, a symbol used in ancient texts to, to make a word or a passage that um, point out that, it, that, that it's, it's doubtful that this was there. Okay? So obviously, the evidence for the account of the woman caught in adultery not being part of original, uh, original gospel of John is overwhelming. It, it, it's overwhelming. And these are, I just gave you like four or five in each of those internal and external. There's way more, and we don't have time to go in. And I've got lots of books. If you'd like to read hundreds of pages about this, I'd, I'd encourage, encourage you to do that. But I just gave you kind of an overview. And this is enough to say, wow, uh, this doesn't look like it was in the Gospel of John. But even though evidence points to the, this conclusion that, that it wasn't the Gospel of John, most scholars believe that this account most likely occurred. This account of the adulterous woman, it really did occur. And it was most likely passed down orally in the early church. This happened. We saw Jesus do this. And what happened is later on, in later manuscripts, this was written down. So people would remember it. And somebody decided, well, hey, this is something Jesus would do. I mean, there's nothing in the passage that would say this is something different from anything else Jesus would do. In fact, many of the things that Jesus taught are summarized in what he does here. We see grace. We see forgiveness. We, we see uh, Jesus confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, which he did all over the other Gospels and in the Gospel of John. So we don't see anything that this, that this out of place in the sense of goes along with the rest of Scripture. So most likely a, a, a scribe or someone who is copying down the Word of God at some point, 6th century or something like that, came along and they added this. They put it in there because one people will know this is something Jesus did. All right? But it's not part of the original Gospel of John. And because I believe that it's most likely, and I can't say for sure, but most likely something Jesus really did, I preached through it. I've spent two messages on it actually. Um, in, 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 these, in these 11 verses. And, and there's some great stuff there. So the fact that this account is not in the original Gospel of John may cause you to ask, what other portions of the Bible that we have today weren't in the original? And thankfully, there's only one more. And that is the end of Mark. Mark 16, 9 through 20. And the good news is that neither one of these passages, Mark 16, 9 through 20, or John 7, 53 through 8, 11, neither of them, if you took them out of your Bible, you would miss nothing. There would be no grand teaching about Jesus and about God and about us that would be, that would be missing. It would all still be there. You, you could go along and the Bible would still teach everything that teaches. So you're not missing anything if those passages aren't there. And, and, and I remember... Um, 
uh, seeing this and beginning to studying those things, and, 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 and I'm thinking, wow, that, but what, what, what else is? And I began to study other things. This is way before I preached on it um, when I was younger. And, and is there another passage? Another passage? No, there's only two. These are the only two that are in question. And, and, and when you look at the internal, external evidence, you find out that most likely they were not, okay? Um, let me mention this. In, in, on June 5th, 2011, John MacArthur finished preaching through the entire New Testament after 43 years of pastoring. He preached every word, every phrase, every verse in the New Testament, 43 years. And he finished that preaching in the book of Mark, which has this other passage in it, in Mark 16. 9 through 20, this other portion not found in Noah's manuscripts. Listen to what he says in regards to this section at the end of Mark, which is very similar to John. He says, this section at the end of um, provides a very rich opportunity for Bible students to be strengthened in the confidence that the Bible that they hold in their hands is accurate. This section allows us to do something we've never done in 43 years, and that is to go behind the text, below the text, the cherished English translation that you have come to love, and to dig down into the history of the ancient manuscripts on which all modern translations in all languages are based. You hold in your hands that precious Bible, and you don't even think about the fact that there is an entire history behind it, a long history, a long history of careful preservation of the original manuscripts, the original texts, so that thousands of years later, when you read your Bible, you can trust that you have an accurate translation of the original. And, and I want this morning the very same thing for each one of you here this morning. I, I want you to know that you can trust that you have an accurate translation of the original manuscripts in your hand. I want you to know that. I want you to be assured of that. You're probably thinking, you just kind of caused me to doubt when you brought up this whole thing about John and this Mark passage not being in there. That's not, that's not the reason. In fact, those things lend further support to why you should trust what you have in your hand is reliable. It really is the Word of God. So, with the time I have left here this morning, I, I want... Um, us to briefly look at the overwhelming evidence that we have a trustworthy and accurate translation of the original that your Bible is reliable. I want you to know that. All right? I'm, I'm going to do something here. This thing's pestering me to death. You can just turn this off. I'm good. I'm just going to pick this up. Voila. Okay. I'm on red. I was red here. I'm red there. All right. All right, didn't change colors. That's good. Well, the Bible itself says numerous occasions that God's word will endure forever. All right, for example, we, we find this in Isaiah 48. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Is this true even with the transmission from the originals to what you have before you today? Is this true? That the word of God stands forever. We can trust it. And I would say overwhelmingly, yes, it is. So let's find out by looking at some of the overwhelming evidence that points to the fact that we have an accurate translation of the original, that the Bible indeed is reliable. Uh, let's begin with the question, how do we get our Bibles? Well, yeah, I went down to the store and I bought it. I ordered it online. I just downloaded an app. No, I'm not talking about that. How do we get the, the, the translation uh, that you have in front of you. How do we get English Bibles? And I can't go into all this. Would take, we could be a year in doing a study on this, but I'm going to give you an overview at least. Everything up to around 1500, when the printing press came out 15, in the 1500s, early 1500s, was handwritten. 
Okay, and it was, it was copied by hand. The first Greek New Testament produced by the printing press was in 1516 by Erasmus. Um, and even after this, people copied the Bible by hand up through the early 1600s because it's the way they'd done it. And the printing press was new. And then all of a sudden, the printing press took over. And after that, it was all done by the printing press. Um, those who copied the Bible by hand, scribes, they took it very seriously. And they had special cleansing rituals. Uh, some of them, when they were, were copying the Old Testament, if um, once they came to the, the Word of God, they would throw away their little pen or little quill and start over and, and, and write the Word of God, throw that one away, just to make sure the word Yahweh, and make sure they got, it right, they, they got that right because it was God's Word, the name of God. And they were just, just, just unbelievable how detailed they were. They were like spelling check on steroids. All right, way more, maybe even better than what we have before, before us even today with our computers. I mean, they were serious about what they were doing. At first, scribes were copying straight from the originals that were written by Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John and Mark and Paul. And then the, the scribes copied from copies of the originals and so on. And there are no original manuscripts of the Old Testament today. Not, not, we don't have any original manuscripts or the New Testament, which is probably a good thing. Why do I say that? Why, wouldn't it be great to have one of the originals? Now, you know what we would do with it? We would put it in a glass case, and people would go all over the world to go worship it. That's what we would do. That's what mankind does with those kind of things. There's tons of stuff like that that are claimed to be the original whatever it is, right? And people go and worship it. And in some ways, God's probably protecting us from idol worship, all right, the worship of the original manuscript of an Old Testament or a New Testament. And so we don't have any of those, but it's okay. It shouldn't cause us concern. Um, it causes us to lose any faith that we have an accurate and trustworthy translation. Um, let me explain why. First, let me briefly address the reliability of the Old Testament. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, which contains portions of every book in the Old Testament, uh, except the book of Esther, the oldest Old Testament manuscript known was what was called the Masoretic Text. And that dated to around, listen, 900 A.D. 900 A.D. Think about that. Not before Christ. And when was the Old Testament written? Way before Christ. The oldest we had was 900 A.D. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And they're dated between 250 B.C., all right, and 135 A.D., all right, but they're early. They're, most of them would say it's before um, uh, Christ was born. So you see the Masoretic text between 900 and 1,000 A.D., and then you see the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were written. And w in, in other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain most of the Old Testament and predated, all right, the Masoretic text, all right, by about 1,000 years. We can see that, right? Do the math. It's simple math. It's around a thousand years. It predated the Masoretic text. This was an amazing discovery. A thousand years. The oldest we had was 900. Now we got it before Christ was born. We have copies of manuscripts of the Old Testament. And when they compared the book of Isaiah with the two man between the two manuscripts, the Masoretic text and the old the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, a thousand years apart, they discovered they were identical. Listen, in more than ninety five percent of the text, and the five percent that they weren't identical in, that they differed in, were slips, obvious slips of the pen, spelling differences, very small. 
It didn't change at all the meaning of Isaiah. It didn't change at all even the sentence structures or anything like that. Very small little things. Now listen to this. A thousand years. A thousand years of copying this thing down. Mostly by hand. This was by hand. The Dead Sea Scrolls by hand. And yet what we had a thousand years later was basically the same thing. No big, no big changes. That's amazing that God's, God had seen fit to preserve his word that accurately, even using human people. That's amazing that would happen. And, and these manuscripts, including small and, and large portions, um, uh, didn't differ in major ways at all. All right, so be encouraged by just the Old Testament. But I want to spend more of our time in the New Testament because one of the, 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 the I guess the sample text from John is what we were talking about. And, um, and again, we do not have an original manuscript of the New Testament. Remember that. All right, but we have an abundance of manuscripts that continue to grow in number. We're discovering more and more and more all the time. Of, these, of, of the New Testament manuscripts. And these manuscripts, whether they be small or big, they have been meticulously, thoughtfully studied and compared by scholars for centuries, so much so that I can say that if you have an actual English translation, not a paraphrase, an English translation, uh, let me just say real quick, this is, this is not my notes, but I want you to know this because a lot of people ask these kind of questions, okay? There's basically three, three types of English Bibles out there. There's a paraphrase, and they're just trying to get the big picture, the paraphrase. All right, and then, 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 then you have, on the other end, you have what's called a formal equivalent. So their heart um, is to get as much word for word as possible. You can't translate, if you all understand anything about language, you can't translate word for word. You can't do that. It sounds silly. All right, Kaylin can speak Spanish. And if, 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 I tr if, she tr if she tried to translate what I'm saying in English, word for word in the same order to somebody who spoke Spanish, they'd be going like, what in the world are you doing? That makes no sense at all. It sounds like a three-year-old trying to speak. You can't do it exactly like that. But their, their, their heart was to be as, as original as possible. So you have, in that, in that camp, you have like the King James, New King James, New American Standard, uh, the ESV, all following what's called a formal equivalent translation of the, of the Bible. Then in the middle, all right, you, you, have, you, you have another type of uh, translation that they're, they, they're concerned about the accuracy. They're, they're, they're more thought for thought. So it's not as cumbersome to read. I use the New American Standard to preach from. I read from it. Uh, um, and, and sometimes it's kind of it, choppy. It's kind of hard to understand. It's, it's, it's the same with the King James because it's older English. All right? But, but so the thought there with some of these translations was not to get away from the originals and teach some heresy, but the thought was let's make it easier for people to read so they can understand it. All right? That's, that's called a dynamic equivalent. All right? Formal equivalent, dynamic equivalent, and paraphrase. If you have a real English translation of the Bible in, in, the, in, in, the, in the formal equivalent or dynamic equivalent camp, rest assured you have a good English translation of the originals. Now, I would prefer that you find more on the formal side. That's just my preference there. Doesn't mean if you're using something a dynamic equivalent, you're going to hell. All right? It's okay. There's very good translations. All right? And, and, and so I, I throw that in there just so you, a lot of people ask those kind of questions and you, there's more you can study on those. But you have a good English translation in front of you, I promise you. All right? So listen to the following quote about the process discovering the words of the New Testament has led to. 
All right, listen, it says, with this type of method, the New Testament documents can be reconstructed with an incredible accuracy. Furthermore, the New Testament is approximately 99.5% textually pure. This means that of all the manuscripts in existence, they agree completely 99.5% of the time. Of the variants that occur, most, mostly are easily explainable, and very few have any effect on the meaning of the passage. In all, no New Testament doctrine is affected by any variant reading. All right? And now we even have computers, and they can take all these manuscripts, and I'll tell you how many here in a second. They can take all these manuscripts, and they can compare them, I mean, like never before. It's amazing that how they can compare them and come up with these true conclusions. And when it comes to the manuscripts, no ancient text has more manuscripts than the Bible. Look at this chart, okay? Now you're thinking, who in the world are all these people, all right? Livy, Tactus, uh, Centunius, the, the, um, I'm just going to pronounce these with confidence. I have no idea how to count, pronounce them, as you all know how I do that when I come to names I can't pronounce. Just say, go right on, all right? Uh, Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, they're all Roman historians. Now, how many people have read all those guys, right? Not many people. Maybe you read some of them, all right? Um, and 80%, 89% of what we know about Roman history comes from these writers. And let me ask a question. If you're in your history class and you're reading about Roman history, do you ever go, oh, I don't believe that's true? Yes, well, yeah, yeah, there we go, good. Most people don't. Most people say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's right there in the book, right? We believe that. That's what most people do in our, in, in our world. They do. They shouldn't, but they do. They, they just take it. Well, that's how it was in Roman history because these were historians. Now, a lot, I'm not saying that these people were trying to be deceptive or something like that, but you always have a different slant maybe on, on history. But these guys were Roman historians who lived around those times, okay? And <clears throat> now notice the amount of manuscripts we have on their writings, all right, Livy, we have 27. The next guy, oh, Mr. T, he got three. Uh, the S guy, we got 200 plus. I mean, he's got a lot of manuscripts. The next guy, we got 20. And then Herodotus, we got 75 manuscripts. You think, man, that's a lot of manuscripts. Oh, uh, and, and, and notice the time period between when they wrote the earliest manuscripts that we have for each one, all right? So he wrote in AD 17, the, the closest we have is the 4th century. And then, you know, in, 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 in the late 80, I get 80, 56, 120, then we have the 9th century. Wow, that's a long time. That's way over 1,000 years. Same thing with the next over 1,000 years. Uh, we got, you know, 600 between the next two. That's the closest in time from the original to the manuscripts that we have, the copies we have of each one of those, and you're going, man, this is getting really boring. Now, let me show you. Now, look at the New Testament. Da -da -da -da. The New Testament. We have over 5,700. I'll take you, Mr. S, and you're 200 plus. All right. Over 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament, and we have some dating to within 20 years of the originals. But how many people in our world today, and maybe you, even this morning, or sometime in your life, have doubted the authenticity of the New Testament? Most people, maybe I haven't, but most people in our world today, they say, yeah, it's not true. It's not true. But they'll take all these Roman historians who say all this stuff about Rome, and we don't have manuscript within a thousand years of them, and they say, oh, it's, it's true. It's true because they're a historian. They said it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, 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 the crazy thinking, all right? The New Testament wins on every account of studying ancient documents, the New and the Old Testament is the number one winner when it comes to all the different ways that they say, is this authentic? Is this authentic? And all the different ways they do it, who's, who's number one? New Testament, Old Testament. New Testament, Old Testament. New Testament all the way down through. 
It's not even close. And you can go study all that. I'm not making this up. I don't, I don't mind if you go check me out. You should check me out. All right? It's almost embarrassing how much evidence we have for the authenticity of the New Testament here. Um, no other ancient documents even close. So consider here, all right, of the 5,700 5, Greek manuscripts, we have 59 complete, complete manuscripts in Greek. 3,000 copies Original, uh, not original, but 3,000 copies of Greek manuscripts of the Gospels. We have over 100 manuscripts of Greek New Testament from the 2nd and through 4th centuries. All right, that's within 30 to 200 years from the originals. All right, Gospel of John was the last one written between 80 and 90 um, AD. All right, we have, well, I'll tell you here in a second how close we have to that. We have Latin manuscripts, over 10,000. Other ancient versions, which I mentioned, Syriac, Coptic, between five and 10,000 ancient manuscripts. In total, over 25,000 total manuscripts of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts. Quotations, listen to this, from the New Testament uh, by church fathers, listen, over a million quotations from the 2nd century to 13th century, even without the manuscripts, we could get a complete, listen to this, a complete copy of the New Testament just from their quotations in the New Testament. And these are guys who lived within 20, 30 years of the originals. All right? Now notice the time period between the New Testament writers wrote and earliest manuscripts we have. It says right there 100 to 150. Um, a papyrus, uh, which is an ancient type of paper, um, um, that grew alongside the Nile of the Gospel of John called P52. All right, it's not a plane. All right, it's a, it's a, it's an ancient document. It dates to around 8125, which was within 30 to 35 years of when John originally wrote the Gospel of John. Amazing. All right. We also have 43% of the New Testament from Greek manuscripts dating within 100 years of the originals. 43% of the New Testament we have, all right, it, we have manuscripts that date within 100 years of the originals. A, a few years ago, it was announced that a, a probable first century fragment of Mark's gospel had been recently discovered. It, it was dated by a world-class paleographer, which is one who studies ancient, ancient documents, and they're still doing more study and more analysis um, needs to be done. But some of these non-Christian paleographers dated to the first century. It'd be the very first manuscript that we have from the first century when the New Testament was written. It's amazing what they're discovering. In addition to this possible first century manuscript, six other manuscripts were found during the same time dating most likely from the second century. All right, the question is, do all these old manuscripts point to the fact we have a reliable translation of the New Testament in our hands? Think, oh man, that's pretty cool. It's getting even closer and closer and closer. Uh, I love how Daniel Wallace, who studies ancient documents, um, and he's a, he is a believer. Um, he's a Dallas theological professor and um, uh, just just a tremendous man of God. Listen to what he says. How do these manuscripts change what we believe the original New Testament to say? We will have to wait until they are published next year. Now, this is a few years ago. They're still working on. There's been some things published, but not everything. But for now, we can most likely say this. As with all the previous published New Testament papyri, 127 of them published in at least 116 in the last 116 years, not a single new reading has commended itself as authentic. Instead, the papyri function to confirm what the New Testament scholars have already thought was the original wording, or in some cases to confirm an alternate reading, but one that is already found in the manuscript. So we're not finding anything new. It's not, like, oh gosh, we got it wrong. 
We're just, it's just confirming over and over and over again. What we have is true. What we have is reliable. It's from the, from the originals. So there are a couple of things that are amazing about the, the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. Uh, there should not be a lot of manuscripts in the New Testament. Do you all understand that? Christianity was trying to be stamped out from its beginning. People were trying to kill Christians, and thousands of manuscripts were burned. Thousands. We, have, we see that in history. They were trying to get rid of the New Testament. They were trying to get rid of the Old Testament, and lots of them were burned. The very fact that we have 5,700, this is Greek, all right, portions of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament is amazing. No other thing is like that. All right. Secondly, also, even with the overwhelming amount of evidence in the New Testament manuscripts, people still doubt, and they scoff at the reliability of the New Testament. That's just as amazing. How could you question its reliability? You may not believe it, but how can you question its reliability with all the evidence that we have? Yet none of them would question the Roman historians, would they? Except Gail. Okay? All right, that's good. And a lot of people would, and they should, okay? But mo most people don't. They just take it for what it says. Now, you may have heard and, and will hear people talk about the different variants, the differences between all the thousands of New Testament manuscripts. And the fact is, um, there are thousands, listen, there are thousands of variant bet variants between the manuscripts. In fact, around 400,000 variants between the over 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts. I just blew it, didn't I? Listen to this. The question is, what do these variances or differences look like? There's four different kinds. 99% um, of them make no difference at all. Look what it says. Spelling and nonsense errors. This is the largest group. All right. Differences in, look at this. Spelgen or spelling. You see that? That's maybe a variant. You think we could figure that out? Yeah. All right. An A or an A is called movable new. We, even if somebody has poor English, you understand what they're saying, right? And these, there's a few of the variants, and, and, and these are, this is the largest. 70% of the variants, so there's 400,000 variants, fall in this category. Pretty minor, all right? Secondly, alterations that cannot be translated into English, uh, to English all right? Um, what, what do I mean by that? Synonyms. There's easily over 100 different ways to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek. It really is. All the different endings and the moods and the tenses. All the different, the, the different ways you can say Jesus loves Paul in Greek. A hundred different. But it still says Jesus loves Paul. I think we're okay. That's the second biggest one. All right. Third, those that are meaningful but not viable. Uh, um, uh, and this is just a, a poor chance of, uh, that they're a poor chance of being authentic. The second smallest. All right. Earlier manuscripts say kingdom of God and ten, ten centuries later a manuscript says kingdom of Christ. Now that's different, but does it really change the meaning if you read it in context? No. It doesn't change the, the meaning if you read everything in context. You think we're okay there. there and that's a very small number. And, and then the, those are meaningful and viable. Okay. Good chance of being authentic. Um, this, this is the smallest group. Less than 1% of all text uh, variants fit into this group. Okay? So what's at stake? Look here. Revelation 13, 18. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast numbers, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, manuscript in Paris, uh, discipled 160 years ago, says 616. And up to eight years ago, that was the only manuscript, or actually, actually now it's up to 12 years ago, was the only manuscript with 616, but now we have one more. 
Now, if, it's, if it is 616, which I don't think it is, because these are all newer manuscripts that were way later than the originals, okay? And there's two of them that we have. What if it is 616? Is the gospel thrown out the window? No. It's not at all. We're okay, even if it is 616. I don't think it is, and I don't think the evidence shows it is. But it's okay. It, that's just another variant. Okay, I'm just showing you the variants. And there's so many, there's just a few of these. It doesn't change anything. Another question to ask is, are there any major doctrines or teachings at stake in any of the variants in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Let me answer that question. No. Let's move on. Nothing. Now realize, skeptics say that up until 325 AD, Jesus was not considered to be God, but only a prophet. Uh, in, in fact, in the movie The Da Vinci Code, based on Dan Brown's book, um, Lee Teabing says to Sophia, uh, my dear, Teabing declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but, but a man nonetheless a mortal. Now that moment, 325 AD, was the council of Nicaea that was brought together by Constantine. And they see that Jesus was never considered to be God before this. Now, all the early church fathers, and I showed this about the Trinity, too, when I was talking to the Trinity, all the early church fathers speak about Jesus as God. But more importantly, the Word of God and textual evidence from the Word of God says that Jesus was God over and over again. All right? Listen, P66 in John 1.1, dated 175 A.D., which would be before 325 A.D., says that the Word was God. All right? P75 in John 1.1, a little bit later, but before Nicaea, Jesus was God. And all manuscripts of any language we have of the Gospel of John before 325 A.D., A.D. say, and the word was God. That Jesus was God. All of them. Now, well, it was in a movie. It must be true, right? Come on, the Da Vinci Code. I mean, they're smart. Do you ever listen to those people talk? Yeah, listen to them talk. And they may be smart, but they're dumb when it comes to the word of God and true evidence. And yes, it was supposed to be fiction, but many people took it as true. Well, here's the question. Is the New Testament the exact same as the original? I don't know. I don't know if it's the exact same. But is, this, is, is it the same as originals in the essential? Absolutely. Bert Ehrman, he's a skeptic and textual critic, hates Jesus. Um, in his book called Misquoting Jesus, listen to what he says. At least he's honest. No essential Christian belief is impacted by any viable variant. This guy hates Jesus. He's out to attack the gospel. But at least he's honest. When you look at it, and he's a scholar, he calls himself a New Testament scholar, he just doesn't love Jesus. But this is what he says. This is a guy on the other camp. He says, what you have, uh, th- th- there's no vital Christian belief that's affected by the variants in the, New Testament, in the New Testament manuscripts. The evidence of the New Testament, and in fact our entire Bible, there's actually more manuscripts of the Old Testament than the New Testament, points to the fact that the English translation you have in your hand is reliable. You can trust that it's reliable translation of the original. That's good news. That's good news. Why? What difference does that make if your Bible's reliable? It makes all the difference in the world. Why do we hold the Bible in high regard and hear and read and study and memorize and meditate? Why? Because the Bible is true and the Bible we hold in our hands is reliable to that truth. It's a reliable translation of the truth about who God is, about who we are, about how we come into a right relationship with God, how we grow in our relationship with God. All those things are true. Since this is the case, I want to exhort you 
again to do the five things we talked about last week. You guys remember that? Let's see if you remember that. We got our hand here. If you weren't here, all right. You hold up your hand like this, all right. Start with the pinky. All right, let's see if you guys can do it. The, the pinky was what? We hear, all right. Second, the, 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 the ring finger is we read. The middle finger we study. The pointing finger we memorize. And the last one we meditate. So we hear, all right. We read, we study, we memorize, and we meditate. And when you take your Bible and you hold it like this, if you do those things with your Bible, you'll have a firm grasp of what God's Word is all about. Isn't that good news? And this is why this next year, we're going to do the abide reading again. We're going to do the same reading. Yeah, it's the Bible. The first six months, we're going to, do the, we're going to read through the whole New Testament. It's about, it's about a chapter a day. Sometimes we read two. All right? And then the last half, we're going to do an overview of the Old Testament again. Oh, I've got to read the same thing. It's the Word of God. I mean, my goodness, some of us have been reading the Bible for 30, 40 years, and we haven't got it all yet, right? And we won't. We can just keep reading the Word of God and talking about it and, and meditating on it and going over it and over and over. And over. Another thing we're going to do, we're also going to um, give you a, a, a resource to start doing Scripture memory. 52 verses to memorize in a year. That's one verse a week. Very doable if you've ever memorized Scripture. So I can't memorize. I can prove that you can. What's your phone number? All right. Now, a lot of us, I used to say that, and you, oh, I don't, easily everybody knew it, but a lot of people don't know our phone number now because we go, choop, we just speed dial or whatever. But I, I remember my phone number growing up, 606-836-1239. I remember that. Why? How many times do I have to repeat it? That's how I memorize. You memorize by repeating, repeating, repeating. And you can. So we're going to give you 52 verses. And if you want to, there's actually a little devotion that goes with that. Um, uh, those 52 verses, if you want that, we can tell you where you can get that as well. We're going to put 52 verses out there. We're going to memorize the Word of God together. That's exciting, right? And then next week, I'm going to talk to you about a way that you can read the, read the Bible, okay, with thought and, and meditate on it and study it, all right, a little bit more in depth. Um, but uh, I want to say this. If you don't know the Lord here this morning, um, and maybe even if you do, you're thinking, wow, that was like super boring, all right? And maybe that's what you're thinking. If you don't know the Lord, that, that, oh, I'm concerned about both of you think that. But um, if you don't know the Lord, if you've never turned from trusting yourself to make yourself right with God and trust in what Jesus did on your behalf, I want to I implore you to do that today. To understand that you're sinful. This is what the Bible says. The true, reliable word of God says this, that you're sinful. We're all sinful. And we fall short of God's perfect standard to be made right with him. Therefore, he sent his son to die in your place to pay the sin debt that you deserve, which is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. And he says if we would turn from trusting ourselves and trust what Jesus did for us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, we'll be made right with God. We'll be called sons and daughters of God. He'll give us a new heart. And then all of a sudden, we won't be reading someone else's mail because the Bible is written to God's people. And my prayer is you do that today, that you turn from trusting yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that we have a reliable copy of your true inerrant word. And Lord, because of that, we can know you. We can know how we're made right with you. We can know what you expect from us. We, know, we can know how you empower us. And Lord, because of that, I pray, Lord, that we would be thirsty for your word, that we would hunger for your word as a newborn babe craves milk, that we would crave to know you 
by studying your word more and more and more. And that you would be pleased to make us more and more like Jesus as we do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.